Another common anti-vax argument is that doctors learn very little about vaccines during their education. So they only have have the industry recommendations to go on. They just blindly follow those recommendations. They don't know much about what they are doing. They just say, well, here's the vaccine. I've been told you should take it. I've got a rough idea why, but just trust me on this. And you don't really need to see the insert, but if you do want to see it, here it is, but don't waste any time. I can trust, trust me, it's, it's all good. How would you respond to that as a medical student yourself? Yeah, so that's one of the arguments that we can say triggers me the most when I see it because, oh God, the education that we get is so thorough. Okay, we, I will concede we do not have a class called Vaccines 101. However, we do have immunology, we have physiology, we have biochemistry, we have pathology, we have microbiology, every possible, no, we have everything. Uh, even before medical school, we have to take biology and labs, we have to take statistics, we have to take chemistry, general chemistry, organic chemistry, we have to take physics. And that's just to get into med school and then people will often take many more on top of that. I personally have a master's in public health, so I focused a lot on epidemiology and on infectious disease, so I kind of know about that area. But then in medical school, we have all of those classes I mentioned. We have immunology, we have microbi microbiology, where we learn about all of the bugs, you know, fungus, bacteria, viruses, parasites, all of them. We learn about physiology, you know, what happens when different chemical imbalances happen or whatever it is. Um, it's such a thorough education and we don't have a class called Vaccines 101, but within each of those classes we learn about, okay, well, this is, you know, tetanus toxin. This is what it does and this is how you prevent it. And this is the physiology of how that works and this is the, the biochemistry of how that works. And that's just all first year. And then second year, we have more of a systems approach where, and I'm just starting that now, but we learn more about things like I just had my neurology unit where we learn about Guillain-Barre syndrome where, you know, we, we learned it is possible that following vaccination, flu vaccination, GBS can arise. It's very unlikely and very rare, but it is possible. And this is what it looks like. And this is how you treat it if that does happen now, you know, People are going to say, well, why would I get the vaccine if, if it can give me GBS? And the answer then would be, well, you're more likely to get GBS from influenza virus than from the vaccine. So by being vaccinated, you're actually cutting your risk of contracting GBS, of getting GBS, developing it. But it is something that we learn about. So that second year, third and fourth years are actually spent in hospitals with patients and you know, haven't gotten there yet. So I can't speak from personal experience, but we see cases of people who are going to be you know, hospitalized from flu or from COVID or you know, maybe from measles these days or tetanus, whatever else. Um, and we see what happens when, when these people aren't 
vaccinated like they should be using mumps and whooping cough and all of that. We're actually, I just got an email from my school this morning about how um, in a couple of weeks they're adding a course. I'm actually really excited for this. They're adding a supplementary course, an elective for us if, if we choose to take it about COVID. And I think that's so cool. I am going to be there. I'd love to take it. But then, and that's just medical school, then you have your residency and different people are gonna learn different things. A plastic surgeon or a radiologist probably won't learn very much about vaccines past that because they don't need to. They're not dealing with infectious disease from, you know, for the most part. But a pediatrician or an infectious disease doctor or you know, a neurologist who deals with meningitis from time to time, they're gonna learn more about vaccines and they're gonna specialize and that's gonna be what they focus on. And they have, you know, we have continuing medical education hours that are required. Every so often we have to renew our boards. And I mean, there's so much more that I haven't done yet that I'm gonna to have to do. It is a never ending process. And I mean, I can tell you my, my mentor, is a, my neurosurgery mentor has so many journals on his desk just coming in to stay on top of what's going on in the world of neurosurgery. People read these things. The education does not stop in school. So we might not have a vaccines one-on-one -on -one class, but we can tell you about these bugs and about how and about vaccines. The other thing is that, again, we don't live in a bubble. So if there's a question I don't know the answer to, I, I can tell you that there is an adjuvant in a vaccine. I cannot tell you the science of you know, the detailed science of why that's there, what it's doing. I can tell you more or less why it's there, but if you want to know its interaction with the blood-brain barrier, I am not the person to explain that to you, but I can tell you the person who is. And doctors have these people. We have scientists at our disposal. We're not just here on our own living in our own little world. If you have a question and I can't answer it, I can go to this person and say, well, you know, they did the research. They can tell you. And I think that's something that's really important to remember. I might not know every ingredient in a vaccine. I'm not making the vaccine. I'm giving it. I will be giving it, maybe. <laughs> and yeah, so I mean, it's, it's unreasonable to expect that a physician or, or a nurse is going to know the, the biochemistry or the molecular biology of every single ingredient in the vaccine, just like a, a waiter doesn't know about the, every ingredient in the dish that they're serving. That's the role of the pharmacist or the scientist producing the vaccine or the chef. So to, to summarize that then, the question, how much do doctors or, or medical students learn about vaccines seems to me somewhat to miss the point. The point really is that doctors and medical students learn how and why vaccines work. They learn the science behind vaccines. They learn the science that makes vaccines possible and they learn why that is so. And then, of course, subsequently, they can specialize, and some people do, they specialize in epidemiology or virology, so they, they understand the more complex, detailed aspects of vaccination. And then they can become mentors or a ready resource for any professional doctor or, or a medical student who needs information. They know that they can go to these people for the kinds of far more specialized information that only an expert would have. So it's, it's a complete myth, firstly, to say that 
doctors, medical students don't learn much about vaccines and don't know much about them. They actually learn much more than people think because they learn the building blocks of vaccine science. And then, of course, they have access to a wide range of specialists who can go into all the molecular details of vaccine science and explain every aspect of, of its intricacies. Yeah, and I think another point that brings me to is that, oh God, who is the one who said, like, we stand on the steps, I'm messing up the, the quote, but we stand on the shoulders of giants or whatever that was. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, yes, if I remember correctly, that might have been Isaac Newton. And I think it's, he, it's something to the effect that if I can see far, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes, exactly. I think, yeah, that's the point. We, we know so much about vaccines today because we've stood on the shoulders of people who have been doing this research for so, so, so long. So why would we have to go all the way back to the basics to reestablish what we've learned already, which is, you know, a lot of the time people will say, well, do a placebo controlled experiment for this vaccine. We've done that a million times with other vaccines. We kind of know what's happening. We know the science. So let's build on that. And it doesn't make sense to keep going back and reinventing the wheel because we've invented it. We know how this works already. In their argument against vaccines, anti-vaxxers are fond of saying, well, we both agree that herd immunity is necessary to protect a community from disease. I mean, leaving aside the, the smaller percentage of anti-vaxxers who don't even accept the concept of, of herd immunity, but that's, that's a, a story for another time. It's but anti-vaxxers <laughs> like to say, well, if we all agree that herd immunity is the best way to protect a community, why don't we just all develop natural immunity by allowing the community to catch these diseases, and then we don't need to worry about them anymore? Now, as a medical student, how do you feel about that? Well, we're kind of seeing what happens with COVID, aren't we? I mean, it's not at herd immunity levels right now, but we're seeing what happens when large percentages of the, pop of the population get sick and you know, people react to disease differently. And for some people, it's gonna be more mild and for some people, it's gonna be really severe, but even for mild, like I'm a pretty healthy young person. I don't like being sick, even a cold knocks me out. And if I can avoid being sick, I'm gonna avoid being sick. So why would you wish that on your child if there's a very easy way to get all of the benefits and none of the repercussions, maybe a sore arm. I just, it doesn't make sense to me. Then you have things like measles parties where, I mean, they happen in certain communities more than others, but measles, you know, it can be just a rash, but it can also lead to really severe consequences. It can lead to blindness or deafness or, you know, it can lead to a, a latent infection in the spinal cord that then gets you know, uh, reactivated later called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis or SSPE that usually affects somebody about you know, five to 10 years after infection and it's rare, but it is 100% fatal. I don't know if there have been any cases or very, 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 very few cases of surviving that. And why would you put yourself in that position where, you know, it? It's rare, but it's more rare if you're vaccinated. That's a really well-rounded answer. So th thank you for that. Also, top marks for 
smoothly pronouncing the full name of SSPE without even blinking. There's a reason why I always just call it SSPE and you've just demonstrated it. Just the first time I had to do that, it wasn't so smooth. Of course, the other problem with the why don't we all just catch these diseases argument is that there are some diseases which it is impossible to develop an immunity to. There is no such thing as natural immunity to tetanus, for example, or, which is why we need regular vaccine boosters, or rabies. There's no such thing as natural immunity to rabies. You catch rabies, pretty much guaranteed you're going to die without some pretty severe medical intervention. And even if you do get that intervention, there's still a very high chance you will die anyway. And that's, uh, that's precisely why we can't just let diseases run amok in the community and just hope that people will develop immunity to them. Because firstly, as you, as you said earlier, the damage that this would cause to the wider community would just be catastrophic. Secondly, some diseases are so strong that we have no way to develop any kind of immunity to them and they kill very quickly. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, vaccines offer the quickest, most efficient and safest method of achieving herd immunity. So why wouldn't we use it? Smallpox, for example, natural immunity couldn't eradicate smallpox in 250 generations. But once we developed a vaccine for it, we eliminated it in less than 10 generations. And if that's not an argument for vaccination over what anti-vaxxers like to call natural immunity, then I don't know what is. Yeah, no, I mean, you're seeing it again with COVID where people, we don't know if second infection, third infection is possible. We don't know if a second infection is going to be worse, like for dengue. The second infection on of dengue is worse than the first one, severely worse than the first one. And you know, we don't know if that's the case for a lot of diseases. I mean, COVID, we don't really have, we don't have a vaccine right now. So you, know, you got to do the other things to keep away from it. But once there is a vaccine available, assuming it's, you know, tested and safe and effective, et cetera, that's going to be really important because we just don't know enough about this disease to know if it's going to hit people more than once, if it's going to be worse the second time around, if, you know, there are so many unanswered questions. We don't know how long the effects are going to last in people. If it happens in somebody in their 20s, is that going to, are those effects going to last through their 80s? You know, we're seeing long haulers already. They've had this disease, they had this disease four months ago and still can't breathe right. And yeah, vaccines are, as you said, the, the safest and most efficient way to to arrive at, I like to say community immunity because people have a, an aversion to the word herd. And on that subject of, of what anti-vaxxers like to call natural immunity, they love to use the word natural because of course of the implication is that this is the normal right thing to do. This is the way nature intended it. It's all very nice. Forgetting, of course, that nature is full of many terrible things that are very keen on killing us. Have Nature has no interest in keeping us you alive. The entire that. history of the human species has been, you know, a constant battle against nature. And the whole reason we are uh, um, at the stage of development we are is because we 
developed increasingly unnatural ways of of living to ensure that we are not at the full mercy of nature. Exactly. I think it's always so funny when people who make that argument are wearing glasses, for example. Well, why are you wearing glasses? Those aren't natural. And of course, the term natural immunity, as opposed to the immunity you get from a vaccine, that that's always struck me as a particularly absurd argument because the natural the vac the immunity you get from a vaccine is as natural as any other form of immunity because you are developing it in exactly the same way by exposure to the pathogen that would cause the disease and your body is building the immunity in exactly the same way by learning how to combat it by training your uh, your body's immune system to deal with it and and to beat it and by developing the antibodies that will enable it to fight it off the next time it's encountered. So again, this whole idea of natural immunity versus vaccine acquired immunity is complete nonsense because they are both natural ways of developing immunity. The vaccine simply introduces it in a mechanical way. Exactly. And I think you said it really, really well. One of the, the things that I like to say is that being vaccinated is like a loophole that you're pulling against the worst part of disease. You have all of the benefits, and if you want to say benefits of disease, with none of the downsides. You're, you get the exact same immunity. Your immune system doesn't care where this germ is coming from. What your immune system cares about is attacking it and learning the defense for the next time. And it's going to react the same way, whether it's a quote unquote natural pathogen or if it's vaccine derived, but you're going to end up with the same response. And why would you want to get sick? So let's move on to the issue of vaccine studies. So anti-vaxxers like to say, well, we don't trust vaccine studies because they're all conducted by pharmaceutical companies. And pharmaceutical companies have an obvious incentive to fabricate their results. Now, for the benefit of our audience, how would you respond to this? Would you, would you say this is uh, an argument with any type of validity? I mean, is it is it conceivable that a vaccine manufacturer could get away with fabricating studies? Well, what would be the consequences of that? Is it that easy to get away with? So I think that as far as arguments for the anti-vaccine side go, the argument against big pharma is one of the more, I mean, you can still talk about it and it's still not, not right, but I think it's one of the more reasonable arguments that they make. Um, I think it's very, very reasonable to be cautious about big pharma. I, I heard something earlier today that currently big pharma is like the number one least trusted industry in the country, in the US, um, for good reasons. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry has a long and dark history of, of making mistakes, like, you know, making mistakes and, and doing some really shady things. However, you have to remember that you know, a lot of the time these people come from the U.S. and it's a lot of these, the rumors stem from the U.S. and it's very U.S. centric. The U.S. is not its own country. You know, Australia is a place and we often forget about it. I'm sorry, <laughs> we shouldn't, <laughs> but Australia exists. Um, and, you know, there are other places all over with their own industries. And vaccines, scientists don't exist in a bubble 
uh, doctors don't exist in a bubble, scientists don't exist in a bubble. Everybody has colleagues that they rely on for their expertise. So if somebody doesn't know an answer, if a doctor doesn't know an answer, they're going to rely on the expertise of a scientist before them or, or another, anyone else in the industry. And I think that you know, the whole scientific community working together is this really strong force that a lot of people don't understand exactly how strong it is. You have you know, the CEOs of a company. Of companies may not be always the most um, the most moral. Sometimes they're fine, but you know, they sometimes have their ethical problems. But the scientists within those companies know the consequences to their own jobs of fudging data. You can lose your lose your job, your livelihood, everything for fudging data. You can, you know, it's bad. It's like the number one thing in academia you don't want to do. Um, it can also cost so many lives. Like if you release a vaccine before it's been safety tested, then you know if if you release a bad vaccine and people end up do having really bad reactions to it, you're going to cause so much harm to your own company. Why would you ever do that? You want to release something that's safe so that people can use it. And I mean, also you have to remember, sickness costs a lot more than preventative medicine. Preventative medicine is significantly cheaper than dealing with somebody who's on a ventilator. That's a very good point. And it also addresses the vaccines are an easy moneymaker argument that anti-vaxxers like to trot out because of course the reality is that vaccines are not very profitable at all now in in recent years i'm aware that over the last 10 years or so the market for vaccines has increased with new vaccines coming on the market and their profitability has increased as well but when you look at the profit margins they are still negligible compared to the margins for other pharmaceuticals especially pharmaceuticals required for lifetime diseases that that need constant treatment because they are incurable something like uh, ankylosing spondylitis or ulcerative colitis, uh, both of which I'm unfortunate enough to have. So it doesn't make a great deal of sense for pharmaceutical companies to lie about a product that isn't even very profitable in the first place and has so much skepticism surrounding it already and would deliver a phenomenal amount of blowback if you were caught fabricating results. Now, as you said, some pharmaceutical companies do get up to some pretty dodgy stuff. The Vioxx scandal is a classic example. Medication pushed heavily by Pfizer. They misled people about the results. I'm not sure if it was actually proved that they fabricated results, but I think it turned out that they were not entirely honest about disclosing the full nature of the results and the associated risks. And it all came out in a very ugly mess and uh, Pfizer was, was penalized and it dealt a phenomenal blow to their co credibility, not just in the marketplace, but within the industry as well. But Vioxx was a highly profitable pharmaceutical and you could understand that there was a profit motive for calculating the the risk and uh, of being less than open about the risks um, of the medication and and its benefits 
and weighing that up against the profitability. I just don't think there is a case for doing that with vaccines. It, it wouldn't make financial sense in the first place. And I don't think we have any examples, uh, and I'm open to correction, but I, I am not aware of any examples where a pharmaceutical company has produced a vaccine that had terrible effects on people, inevitably bad effects, and either hushed it up or lied about it or tried to get away with it. Um, are you aware of any? I can't think of any. Um, I know that the smallpox vaccine had some, you know, pretty bad side effects associated with it, but based on the severity of smallpox infection, it was deemed that you know, it was a much worse, you know, it was worth the risk. And we no longer administer the smallpox vaccine except for, for people in the military, at least in the US. Um, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, but we don't give that vaccine anymore. Then there was the dengue virus vaccine, Dengvaxia, which had its own problems, but that was quickly pulled off the market in order to correct for them. There was the, um, was it, oh, which one was it? Was it Hep B? Which was the one that was associated with intussusception? Oh, the rotavirus, the rotavirus vaccine that was originally associated with intussusception, which was pulled as soon as they found the association and it was fixed. They don't want these vaccines on the market very long. And I mean, another good one that we can talk about is Gardasil. People hate Gardasil. That's the cancer, the HPV, the, the cervical cancer, et cetera, vaccine. It's a lot of cancers. But, you know, that's one that cancer is a life, especially a cancer that affects young people, is a lifetime, can be a lifetime of medication and it's expensive, really expensive. So much more expensive than to treat, than, than just to, to prevent it. So why would, why would, it just doesn't make sense to me that, that anybody would think that now these vaccines are worse than, like worse money-making schemes than the cancers they prevent. So to add to the examples you've already presented, uh, I can think of the Qatar incident in the 1950s where Qatar laboratories produced a polio vaccine that was found to be contaminated. Now, I know Dr. Paul Offit has written an excellent paper on the Qatar incident that it goes into full detail and explains the background of the vaccine, how it became to be contaminated, what the potential risks were, and what actually happened in the end. But again, that was a manufacturing error, and it wasn't something that was known by Qatar Laboratories at the time. It wasn't a, a deliberate decision to cover up something that they knew about and simply didn't want other people to learn about. That was a, a genuine manufacturing error that just happened to occur by chance. And Qatar was severely penalised for that, and the the vaccine was withdrawn. I think within one or two years, maybe even eighteen months of the industry becoming aware of it, the industry moved very quickly, and all the safeguards and the checks and balances did exactly what they were supposed to do. So again, it doesn't make sense to me for anti-vaxxers to say, "Well, they've lied about other stuff; they would lie about vaccines as well." Historically. They have not lied about vaccines, and, and when problems have occurred with vaccines, which have been very rare, action has been taken very swiftly, and the relevant industries and, and corporations have cooperated immediately and enthusiastically. So this, it, it just doesn't strike me that this is a very robust argument at all. 
something I saw recently within the last mm, two months or so, one or two months, which is actually really relevant. There was a scientist, I don't even remember where he was from, it might have been at Hopkins. It was, you know, he was a, a good, legitimate scientist who wrote an article about why we should rush the vaccine for COVID and, you know, rush to the safety trials and whatever else. And immediately the entire scientific community, not okay, that's an exaggeration, but huge number of people in the scientific community, including myself, jumped on that and said, no, it is a bad idea to rush this vaccine. Yeah, we need a vaccine for this disease, but it is not worth the potential downsides of messing this vaccine up because if you mess it up the first time, you are done. You don't get a second chance. And like the fact that you know people who work within the vaccine industry were coming out and saying, no, no, no. If you know if the White House, for example, wants us to rush a vaccine and wants us to release it before we think it's ready, we won't do it. We will. You know there are a lot of people who work in there who will say we'll quit before we'll do that because the industries themselves as a whole may have some issues, but the people within it, the scientists, are good scientists and they know the damage that it would cost to release a bad vaccine. So this whole issue of, of skepticism about industry-funded and industry-conducted studies leads to the question, are there any independent vaccine studies? And if so, where can we find them? And how can we be sure that they are independent? That's a question I don't really know how to answer. I think the first question is, can you define, and you or the people who make this argument, define independent research? Because yeah, I mean, there are gonna be people, anti-vaxxers who say, well, I am running an experiment and I am not funded by Big Pharma, but they're obviously not people I trust to run a study. They don't know the first thing about research and research is expensive. People don't realize how extremely expensive it can be. Several hundred thousand to million dollars. Now vaccine trials can be several million or billion. They're expensive studies and they need to be funded and research institutions, universities, pharmaceutical companies, they're the ones who have the money and the scientists, and that's where it comes from. And, you know, the government can do some of that, but individual people cannot fund a study that's going to be worth running. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. The, the capacity to conduct these studies is a tremendously limiting factor, and it's only realistic for pharmaceutical companies to run studies on their own products because that makes perfect sense and they are among the few institutions with the resources to do this to fund them and to provide the expertise or to outsource it to to those who do I did go looking for independent studies obviously but um, when anti-vaxxers use the term independent studies, they try to make that definition as tight and as narrow as possible. I would say, as a general rule of thumb, an acceptable definition of an independent study is one that is not run by an industry body and has no financial motive and no direct connection to a vaccine manufacturer or, or a pharmaceutical company. Who? That still does narrow the scope considerably, I, I agree. 
But it is true that there are plenty of government-funded studies around the world. There are plenty of public universities conducting medical research, vaccine-related research, that are funded largely by private grants from uh, from sponsors and patrons and also by government funding that are completely independent from the industry and they often use medical students or science students as well who obviously have uh, are still in training or, or um, in residency and have no financial motive whatsoever. In fact, in 2014, the RAND Corporation conducted a systematic review of vaccine-related studies, and they scooped up about, oh, it, was, it was just over 20,000 studies, and they found well over 100 independent studies, genuine independent vaccine studies. So they are, they are definitely out there. And out of the more than 20,000 studies that they looked at, 166 of these met the gold standard of research, which is a randomized and placebo-controlled trial. And all of these 166 studies overwhelmingly supported the conclusion that vaccines are safe and effective. So RAND Corporation was able to find plenty of independent studies and it's it's definitely possible to to find them. Not being someone in the science or, or medical industry or, or field myself, I wouldn't immediately know where to go. But I'm pretty sure that if I spoke to some experienced medical professionals like Dr. Offord or, or Dr. Pan, they would be able to refer me to the relevant sources, whether it's uh, specific journals that focus on these or institutions or universities that, that produce them. So it, it is absolutely untrue that there are no independent studies. And and certainly because science is a, an ongoing field of, of research, research doesn't stop just because the vaccine has come out. Different, different bodies, industry bodies, independent bodies continue con to conduct research on current medications, future medications, even past medications to learn more about their impact on, on public health and potential risks and, and dangers and, and benefits. So this research never ends. There's no incentive for stopping vaccine research. There's certainly no, in, no incentive for independent bodies which have the resources to not do this research either because that, that could be a real game changer or, or a deal breaker for them in winning new funding as well. So it's research is a, a self-perpetuating field as I understand it. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And this is an area I know less about, so I can't offer so many insights into it. But um, there are always surveillance methods, you know, surveillance studies going on to make sure that nothing bad is happening. And if there's a bad batch, we find out about it so it can be pulled. Um, that's probably the extent of what I can tell you about it. I really, that's not my area. But yes, this the, people like to say, well, this Anti-vaxxers often claim, well, you claim that the science is settled. Well, yeah, we know things like vaccines don't cause autism, for example, or vaccines will prevent this disease. But that doesn't mean that we stop looking at the vaccine. There are always surveillance projects going on. So let's talk about the primary goal of vaccines, which is, is not just 
prevention of disease and, and protection against uh, the the effects of disease with the community, but ultimately eradication, disease eradication. What does it take to eradicate a disease? Or how would we define eradication, of course? And how many diseases have we eradicated so far? So this requires understanding some definitions. And I think a lot of people um, confuse a couple of definitions. We have elimination and we have eradication. They sound alike. So you have a disease like measles, let's say, that has been largely eliminated from countries around the world. So elimination basically means that you don't have, you know, it's been, you don't have a prevalence or uh, you have a very, 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 very low prevalence of a disease within a population. So within the United States or within Australia, but it might exist somewhere else. So say Madagascar still has a lot of measles. Uh, Samoa still has a lot of measles. Israel still has a lot of measles. Um, and it hasn't been completely eradicated from the world. Then you have diseases like polio that are on their way to eradication. It is within our reach to eradicate these diseases if we had the funding for it um, and you know, the political drive to do it can be rid from the world entirely like smallpox, we have no cases of natural smallpox in the world since 19, God, was it 80, 70? I'm pretty sure it was, it was 1979. You're right. So elimination, smallpox has been eliminated, uh, sorry, eradicated. And there are no natural cases left. The only way a human, a person, anyone could get smallpox is if, there were a, a bioterrorism event or if it escaped from a lab that's still kept in labs for certain reasons for studying in very 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 tightly kept labs that you know, very few people have access to but it is kept in labs for study purposes or in the events that it does escape uh, for nefarious purpose there are um you know there's no necessarily proof but there are a lot of there's reason to think that it does exist in vials unofficially in different parts of the world and that who knows it could it, it has the potential to eventually be released and it's unlikely but it could so anyway we have it in vials officially in two places in the world one is in Russia and one is in the US um, but we don't need to vaccinate for it anymore beyond the military because they, they have it for, for bioterrorism purposes. But we don't vaccinate the general public for that anymore because you cannot catch smallpox anywhere in the world, which is amazing. And polio is so close to getting to that point. Measles was really close, less close, but still close to getting to that point. And it is really sad to see it making, it's making a comeback in so many countries. And the US had a really bad outbreak in 2017 or 2018, I think it was 2018. Um, you know, in New York and, and Washington and, and a couple of communities, it has outbreaks and it's really sad to see. Um, you know, Israel's got a, a big problem with measles. Uh, a couple of other countries, I mean, Madagascar still has many, many thousands of cases a year, I think. So yeah, I mean, there are a lot of diseases that we could potentially eradicate, but it takes a lot of money and a lot of willpower and a lot of confidence in vaccines. Yeah, smallpox is is the big win because it was it was just so 
devastating to so many populations. And of course, when it was spread via exploration and colonialism, of course, it became even more damaging because it was unleashed on populations that had never been exposed to it before and had never had any opportunity to develop any kind of resistance as, as with other diseases they were exposed to. The only other disease we've eradicated, I understand, is rinderpest, which is a disease that affects cattle, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure when that was eradicated. Again, it might have been 70s or 80s or something. I, I'm not so crash hot on rinderpest. Um, so that's, I don't remember specifically, but that was also a really gnarly disease that you know, wiped out cattle. It was really, really bad for the cattle population, which then led to economic problems. It was really, really tough disease. And I know a lot less about rinderpest than I can I can lead you to places that can give you more information and just listen to a great podcast about it, but I forgot a lot of it. But yeah, it's another really big win for the human population as well as the cattle population. I think polio is the next one most likely to be uh, eliminated and, and subsequently eradicated. I know polio now has been pushed right out into the margins India and Pakistan are still grappling with it, but its prevalence now across the world is so, so minor. And again, this is a testament to to the power of vaccination because we haven't seen throughout history people developing natural immunity to polio and watching it completely die out from different countries. That just isn't something that happens. And with vaccines being the most efficient effective and cost uh, and cost effective way to eliminate these diseases it's a no-brainer that we would go down that path and it's i mean one of the things that made me so angry and frustrated and sad um recently was when our our lovely president pulled out of the u uh the, the who the who is one of the big funders for polio eradication and now he may not believe it, but a disease that affects a country that's not the U.S. still affects the U.S. And diseases don't have borders. They don't care what color your skin is, what your religion is, what, you know, if you're blue or red politically. Diseases, as we're seeing, can cross borders so easily. So if there's still polio in the world, it's just a plane ride away from here. So it's really in everybody's best interest to get rid of these things. And by defunding are not supporting the WHO, we're really not doing anyone any favors. In my experience, one of the most challenging aspects of refuting anti-vax propaganda is the fact that their claims tend to be simple and easily communicated mainly because, of course, they're simply making assertions and they don't bother to, to support them with anything. They, you know, it's very easy to run out a big, long list of, of unsubstantiated claims in the form of questions or, or challenges, commonly known as, as a gish gallop. But conversely, the information required to refute these claims is necessarily complex. And because people typically prefer simple answers to simple questions, they tend to tune out or become suspicious if they feel the answer is is dragging on too long. So if someone says, oh, I've got a very simple question. 
about vaccines, or I've got a, a, an argument of vaccines I want to present to you, and they present it, and it can be easily presented within one or two sentences. And then, then they say, refute that. And you think, okay, well, firstly, I'm going to need to define some terms. I, I need to clarify precisely what we're talking about here. Then I need to cite some relevant research, explain why that's valid. That all takes a long time. And it's a lot of material to wade through. Can you suggest some good strategies for distilling complex information into bite-sized chunks, which is what I've, I've tried to do with my infographics series. Um, but sometimes, you know, obviously you don't have the luxury of being able to do that on the fly. What strategies do we have for doing that in a conversation, for example, the elevator pitch? It's hard because you're right. Science is so complicated. And like I tune out a lot of the time. There are things that people will start talking about and I will say, you know what, that's on you. I'm glad somebody else understands it because I don't. And I think that is something we need to focus on is raising the confidence in our scientific community because there are a lot of things that people, you can't distill down to simple words. It's just, it's complicated stuff. And we need to trust that somebody out there understands it and we need to trust those people. So I think that really working on building a trust in our scientists and our physicians and you know whoever else is involved in, in these things is really important. But when communicating to the lay, to, to lay people, I generally ugh, got a rule that I got when I was writing years ago. I don't know how accurate this is even, but someone once told me that the New York Times writes for the level of an eighth grader. So a 13 year old can read it. And again, I don't know how accurate that is, but that's a rule that I keep in mind. I want a 13 year old to be able to understand what I'm saying when I'm writing it, because there are a lot of people who will see a big science word and just tune out immediately. They could be the smartest person in the world. Again, they could have a PhD in English or history, but science is hard and people don't always get it. And then there are different levels of education. You know, you can have your PhDs who don't know anything about science, but you can also have people who haven't finished high school. And it, you know, it's complicated. So I try to be really careful about the words that I'm using. And if I'm using a big word that I can't avoid, I do try to define what that means early on. I try to leave space for people to ask questions and to say like, if anything I'm saying doesn't make sense, please feel free to like ask me to clarify. And I think another thing that a lot of people can't speak so much to other countries' healthcare systems, I have a feeling it's a little bit better and different, but at least in the US and a lot of the places that I've been, especially in cities like New York, is doctors, are rushing through patients. They may have, you know, three, four patients in an hour and they don't have time to sit there and explain everything. And that's something that is inherently wrong with our system in the US, of health, our, our healthcare system. And that's another conversation that I'm not sure I am fit to have. But that's something that I think we really need to work on is our ability to take parents and their concerns seriously without getting frustrated and waving, waving them off and saying, listen, I'm the doctor. I know what I'm talking about. I don't have time for this foolishness. So just do the thing and move on. Because parents don't respond well to that kind of communication. Nobody does. And I think we really, really need to focus on being accessible because 
asking questions isn't a bad thing. It's nobody tells, no, nobody's gonna tell you don't ask questions. I want this podcast to reflect a, a, a decently broad range of, of voices from lay people to students to experts. So can you suggest one or two people that you think I should interview? Yeah, God, there are so many. Well, I can give you two students who I, I talk to pretty frequently, um, one of whom you probably know, the other one you may or may not know. So, well, actually, he's not a student anymore. So Ed Nirenberg, you probably know. So Ed's a good one. He's, you know, out of college, but not a medical student yet. He is working, gonna, you know, applying to be one, but very, very good um, at a lot of the debunking. Um, let's see, who else? I can get God, I have so many people and it depends what kind of thing you're looking for, like what specialty, what, um, I can give you a list of names I can, um, but I also don't know who's available um, and what, what timing is because a lot of the people I talk to are like actively working on COVID stuff, but I mean, I can give you a list of so many people depending on what kind of person you're looking for. Yeah, that would be great. I'll, um, I'll send you a rough idea of, of what I'm looking for and you can shoot me back a, a list of people to, to follow up with. That'd be really cool. Finally, then, if people want to follow your work, where can they find you? Yeah, so I am not on Instagram, but I am on Twitter. I am at Rachel Alter 007. I'm not a huge James Bond fan, but I, I do love the number seven. It's my favorite. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best place to find me. That's really great. Look, Rachel, you have been very, very generous with your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I've really appreciated the fact that you've, you've given the opportunity to